You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. children of the devil. We were children of Satan until we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what it says in John. We were unhappy. We were hiding in our dissatisfaction. And as the years go by or went by, we continue to maintain what we call a safe distance from God. Well, that's okay for you. That God thing is okay for you, but I'm not really into that right now. We maintain a safe way, a safe distance. We're away. We all strayed. In today's message, Pastor Dave will remind you that all people are born sinful. From the moment we're born, we all have a sin nature or a natural tendency towards sinning. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and deserve to spend eternity away from Him. But He made a way for each of us to come to Him. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 as he begins his message, The Kindness of God. We are going to continue our trek through the book of 2 Samuel. If you want to open your Bibles to chapter 9, 2 Samuel. So we've been working our way through 2 Samuel. And you know that the Lord had David anointed king of all Israel. Israel that used to be in two parts is now together. Israel is now together. They are one nation under God. The Lord used David to recapture the Ark of the Covenant and bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, which David made as the capital city. In fact, it's called the city of David. The Lord used the hands of David to restore Israel back to the land which he had sworn to give their fathers way back in the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis. Much of the land was still in the hands of the enemy, and the Lord used David to go and conquer the land. And now Israel obtained more land than they have ever obtained in their entire life. They had more land. They had the land that was promised to them by God Almighty, the land that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The entire land was theirs. The Lord had given David precious promises, promised that his dynasty, his kingdom would last forever, and that through his seed, one would come, the Messiah would come and lead Israel into repentance and back to God. What a promise, what a glorious promise that that the Lord gave to David. The Lord used David in a mighty, mighty way and continues to use him today in our lives. The Lord is continuing to use David in our lives today as we study these scriptures. He becomes alive on these pages to us when we read about him and he becomes a real person. And, and because he was a real person and he lived and he did these things that are recorded here. So as we glean from these scriptures, we apply them to our lives. And so David is still doing a mighty work from the Lord, doing a mighty, mighty work for the Lord in our heart. As we reach chapter nine, David is at the pinnacle point in his life. He's at the highest point of his life. This is his greatest hour. But sadly, in a very short time, David would begin the long slide down. 
and the rest of David's days would be dark. There would be disobedience. There would be hurt, pain, despair. And he would end that kingdom, end his time as king in not very good way. So David is at the top right now. And the David we're going to study tonight, I love this David. I love this David that we've been studying up until this point. I just love this David. He is so righteous and so pure to God. You can see why God called him a man after his own heart. You can see that. As we come into chapter 9, one commentator that I studied said this is the most touching chapter because David shows the kindness of God to one of Saul's relatives. He shows the kindness of God. In this chapter, we see David as a type of Christ. Remember, there are types in the Old Testament. And we see David as a type of Christ in this chapter as he shows grace to one of Jonathan's sons. He shows the grace of the Lord. And we're going to, make a, we're going to be making a comparison between us and Meshebetheth. I've got to say that name about 20 times, so get used to it. Most believe that Chapter 9, when we read chapter 9, David had been on the throne of Israel now for 15 years. He'd been on the throne of Israel for some 15 years. And as he's contemplating the years, and as he's reflecting the past, he asks a curious question. Now we're not told to whom he asked this question. We, we really don't know. But we read in verse 1, now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? We're not really sure who David said this or to whom he, he spoke, but it's clearly written in the Scriptures, David is contemplating his life. He's contemplating all the things that God had done for him way back in chapter 7. He's contemplating that his enemies are at rest and he doesn't have to worry about them anymore. And all the people are with joy because they can go and live their lives without worrying about the Philistines, the, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and all the other termites that come in and attack him. They don't have to worry about those things. He doesn't have to worry about that. And it's a restful time for David. So he contemplates this. The reply, the reply comes in verses 2 through 4. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lo-Debar. David finds out that there is a relative of Saul living, a male relative. He's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, Meshibosheth, M-E-P-H-I-B-O-S-H-E-T, Meshibosheth, that guy. He's living in a place called Lo-Debar. Lo-Debar simply means a pastureless place. So think about it. There's no pasture in Lodabar. So what does that tell you what it looks like? It looks like a desert. It looks like a place where there's nothing but rocks. It looks like a barren place, a desolate place, a place of emptiness and a place of dissatisfaction. And he finds out that Jonathan's son is living with someone else. He doesn't even have his own house to live in. He's basically in hiding. He's living in fear. 
He's afraid that David's going to have him killed because he's the son of Jonathan. He's the only living male relative of the house of Saul, and he would be next in line to the throne because that's how it worked. That's how dynasties went. That's how monarchy went. When the oldest monarch or the king died, the next oldest person in line, which is usually his son, took over. So he was afraid. But remember, I know you do, back when we studied 2 Samuel 4, when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death was heard, Meshebeth's nurse grabbed him. She grabbed him in a hurry, and she started to run for their lives, and she dropped the boy, and he became lame. He had been lame all these years. They anticipate that he was about five years old when she dropped him, so he probably is now some 20 years old. All right? He's a grown man. He was hiding in fear since then. I'm sure he heard the stories about David and his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan. I'm sure he heard more stories about how Saul wanted to kill David and there was great fear in his heart because of the stories he heard. There was constant harassing on Saul's part, constant seeking David, trying to kill him all those many years. And I'm sure that Jonathan's son had been indoctrinated with all these fears of this David and who he was. I don't know if he ever knew of the covenant between Jonathan and David. I don't know if he ever knew of the love that Jonathan and David shared, this brotherly love that they had one for another, and they made these great covenants. I'm sure that the fear that he had for David might have even turned to hate. Might have even turned thinking that David was responsible for not only his father's death, but his grandfather's death as well. But David's desire, it says up in verse 1, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. I love that. He certainly could not show kindness for Jonathan. But in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan and David made a covenant. And David said, when I become king, I will not destroy any of your descendants. I will not kill them. And David wants to keep that covenant. This is a beautiful picture. David wants to share the kindness of God with Mephibosheth. He wants to share the kindness of God, the grace of God, if you will. Look at the condition of Mephibosheth. He was living for 15 years as a cripple. His life had been dry. He's been unstable. He's been unable to live in his own house. He's been unable to live the way he thought he would live. He was in fear of the new king. He lived for 15 years in fear. He lived in a desert place, a dry place, which is far, far away from the king. And we look at him, we can see our condition before we accepted Christ. When we look at Mesibaseth's condition, we can see our condition before we accepted Christ. Stay with me. First of all, he was far away from God. He was far away from God. He was living in a state of dissatisfaction. He was living in a barren place. He had been indoctrinated by others not to seek God. So the safest thing is to steer clear of God. Steer clear of David. This was the same for us. In Ephesians 2, verse 18, it says, while you were afar off. We were not children of God. We're going to read when we get to that part in John that we were children of the devil. We were children of Satan until we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what it says in John. We were unhappy. We were hiding in our dissatisfaction. 
And as the years go by or went by, we continue to maintain what we call a safe distance from God. Well, that's okay for you. That God thing is okay for you, but I'm not really into that right now. We maintain a safe way, a safe distance. We're away. We all strayed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6. So nobody was there. We were indoctrinated also, but we were indoctrinated by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were indoctrinated by them to our own thinking. We were indoctrinated that God was against us, that God was a mean God, a God of wrath, and all he wanted to do was take the wooden spoon and smack us with it over the head. God was a God of wrath, and we thought that way, and we wanted to hide. God wanted to spank us and hurt us because of the way we lived. That's what our thoughts were. Secondly, I see Mephibosheth is fearful of what will happen, so he kept his distance. And not only is he far off, but he's fearful. He knows his life is not what it should be. He knows that there is a God, and that the God is righteous, and that God is just and perfect, and therefore, he can't face him. Just like us, in our situation, when we were far off from God, we felt like we couldn't face him. We knew we were living a life opposed to God. We had a conscience, and we acted contrary to our conscience. We knew we were living under, uh, uh, not according to God's law. And thirdly, Mephibosheth had been resentful towards God for the loss of his father and the loss of his grandfather. Why would a loving God allow his grandfather and father to be killed on the same day? This could be similar to the condition that we had before the Lord showed us his goodness and his mercy. Maybe there was resentment towards God's in our heart. Maybe some of you are carrying resentment towards God today for things that have befallen you, things that have happened in your life. These things like this invade our minds. They, they are, invade our minds because that's where the battle is. The battle is in our mind. The battle is in our mind. We need to transform our thinking. We need to be renewed our thinking in our mind to what is really happening. We see our relationship with God is far off. We're fearful. And we might be somewhat resentful. And when this happens, we're believing the lie from the pit of hell. When you get fearful of God, when you get, that's a quaking fear, thinking he's going to hurt you, not a reverent fear. Let's make a different distinction there. When you get that way, and when you get resentful, when we believe that, that those kinds are happening, we're believing in a lie. We believe a lie. That's what Romans said. They believed the lie. They knew God, but didn't declare him was God. So they believed the lie. This is exactly in the condition which grace came upon each and every one of us. This is the exact position that we were in when the grace of God was poured out upon us, where God meets us and we find out this God is not against us. This God is for us. This God loves us. And we read a book called the Bible and we find in Romans verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were sitting our crazy little heads off, Jesus went to a cross and died for us. Jesus loved us and demonstrated his love in that manner. And all of a sudden we go, wait a minute. All my perceptions about God are wrong. And all of a sudden you're filled and overwhelmed by this Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who was sent by God to, to give us salvation, to offer us salvation through a cross and to lead us back to God. And when we get into that, that relationship, wow, things start to happen. Our eyes become opened. See, 
the grace of God meets you right where you are. Right in the midst of your sin, the grace of God reached down, put out his hand. I'm always liking it to being on a water and somebody falls in the water from your boat and you reach for a life preserver and you throw the life preserver out to that person. Now the chances of you taking that life preserver and wringing that person's head are pretty slim. You might do it, but chances are you probably won't do it. Chances are the life preserver is going to land fairly close to you, isn't it? Now, in order to keep from drowning, what do you have to do? Grab the life preserver. Jesus is our life preserver. Jesus is our life preserver. And in order for us to receive him, we've got to grab onto him. We've got to cling to him and grab onto him and believe that he is a forgiver of sin. Believe that he is the giver of eternal life. Believe that God raised him from the dead after he died on the cross for my sin. And when we believe in that, when we tightly have the, the life preserver, things happen. We're no longer fearful from God. We have a reverent fear. We have a reverent fear for him. And we revere him and we love him because of what he did on a cross for us when we were still sinning. And we love him. And we come to him with our hearts open say, Lord, we want whatever you want for us. Fill us afresh now. And he gives us an inheritance in the Holy Spirit. He pours his Holy Spirit out inside of us and we're saved. Saved to a living hope, a lively hope. Joy and peace and comfort become part of us. You might be in a dry and desert place tonight. You might feel that you're suffocating spiritually. You cannot seem to make any progress. You might be like the crippled Mephibosheth. But know that God loves you. Know that his grace is sufficient to meet all your needs. Know that the Lord sees your affliction. He sees what you're going through. He hears your cry and he knows what to do. He is in control completely of your life if you've given him your life and turned it over to him. No matter what it may be, think about what you're going through. Is there anything too hard for God? No. No? He does impossible things, right? There's nothing too hard for God. There's nothing too minor for God to take on and to help you with. And when we see that, we're lifted up. We're built up. The Lord has seen your sin and he continues to love you in the midst of your sin and in spite of your sin. He might be calling out to you tonight and if you would just but listen to his voice, hear him calling you and then go to him in humility and then cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. And just like David sends a messenger to Mephibosheth and called him to the king. God has sent his son to us. God has sent his son to us to take us back to him, to lead him to the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look, look at verses 5 and 6. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Meshivatheth, the son of Jonathan, and the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Meshivatheth, and he answered, here is your servant. I love this. I love this. This is such, such beautiful. It's really beautiful. Meshivatheth sees David, and he falls on his face, prostrate before him. Now, if we're viewing David as a type of Christ, 
I venture to say, it's exactly what we're going to do. I venture to say, when we see our loving Savior, when we see him face to face, we're going to fall flat on our face. Now, in the song, I can only imagine, you know, will I dance for you, Jesus, or all of you be still? And there's a part where I fall on my face before you. I believe that that's not going to be much dancing for a while. I believe our noses are going to hit the ground. I believe we'll be prostrate before him. Just like Meshivaseth was prostrate before David. David calls him by name, Meshivaseth. This changes the entire scene. This ministered to the young boy's heart. He was only 20 years old. Just like when the Lord calls our name. He knows your name. He knows your every thought. He calls us by name. Our hearts are overfilled with joy when the Lord calls us by name. But John, in his, in his gospel, in chapter 10 says, Jesus knows the name of the sheep. And when he calls the sheep by name, they hear his voice. And they come to him. Meshiva Seth replies, here is your servant. And as soon as I read this, I thought, wow, it's just like what Eli told Samuel to do. Remember Samuel was sleeping back in chapter 3 or 4 of, of 1 Samuel? Samuel's asleep. His mom and dad had left them off, and Samuel's asleep. And all of a sudden he hears, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and he runs to the next room and says, Eli, Eli, what did you want? Nothing, I'm sleeping. Nobody called you. Well, you know, it happens three times. And on the third time, Eli said, wait a minute. I think the Lord's trying to talk to you. Say, here I am, Lord. Your servant is here. So the next time that happened, Samuel said, here I am, Lord. Your servant's listening. And the Lord gave him this great prophecy. The Lord wanted to talk to your hearts. Maybe you should just say, here I am, Lord. I'm open. You know, the hardest thing I have to do, and I'm going to admit this, the hardest thing I have to do is, because I just want to gab to them. You know, I want to talk to them. He knows what's on my heart. But if we would just sit, What's the scripture? Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. He speaks to us in that still, small voice. Because the world is clamoring. The world is yelling at you. The world is on one side of your head with cymbal, bang, 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 yelling and screaming and hollering, you're no good. You don't deserve anything. That person hurt you. That person hurt you. You need to get back at this person. Get back at that person. Blah, blah, blah. You call yourself a Christian. Blah, 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 blah. And it's hard to block that out. The Lord speaks to us in a still, small voice. And we need to be ever still before him. Here I am, Lord. Speak to me. Your servant awaits what you want to say. Speak to us. One of the greatest and best ways he speaks to us is through his word. He speaks to us through his word. He may give you a scripture. And you look it up and you go, that's exactly what I was thinking about. That's exactly what I'm going through. Well, yeah. Your servant is here. What a great response when the Lord calls. Your servant is here. Wow. Look at David's words now to Meshivasheth in um, verse 7a. First words out of David's mouth. So David said to him, do not fear. Wow. Reading along through the Gospels, you probably heard that once or twice. And it's probably coming from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
The book of 2 Samuel continues the story of King David as he's finally able to ascend the throne. Though he seemed to have achieved God's calling on his life, David's journey wasn't free of problems. David was still human, and he made mistakes that affected him and those he loved. But during the rest of his life, no matter where it took him, David remained a man after God's own heart. When confronted with his sin, David consistently turned back to his heavenly father, confessing and asking for forgiveness. David knew he wasn't perfect and that he needed the mercy only God could provide. Today, we hope you too remember that God's mercy is worth seeking. He's provided for you the grace you need to live free from your sin through the blood of Jesus. Jesus came to die on the cross in your place, taking the punishment your sins deserved. Would you like to know more about having your sins forgiven? Please visit our website then, assurehoperadio.com. Click on How to Be Saved to learn all about what Jesus has done for you and why you need His grace in your life. If you still have questions or would like us to pray with you, please don't hesitate to call us, 609-884-5821. Again, that number is 609-884-5821. We're so glad you tuned in today. You can hear more messages like this from Pastor Dave at our website as well. Just click on podcasts slash radio when you visit assurehoperadio.com. Thanks for joining us today on Assure Hope.